Welcome to the PreparedX Podcast, your complete source for crisis, emergency, business continuity and security preparedness interviews, news, and much more. Now, your host, he creates chaos for a living, Rob Burton. Hello, and welcome to episode 125 of the PreparedX Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Rob Burton. And just before we get into it, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by First Look, which is a service uh, from, of course, PreparedX, tailor-made crisis simulation exercises that you can administer yourself covering everything from cyber incidents, active shooters, supply chain disruptions, weather events, whatever it may be. Learn more at preparedx.com slash first look. Well, welcome to this episode. Really looking forward to having a conversation here with Sean Cunningham. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Rob. Uh, we'll be exploring lots around a crisis management. We'll be talking about the strategic level. Um, Sean will be going into redefining the role of the chair as it relates to managing that crisis management team. Uh, the escalation mechanisms plus uh, game-changing impacts of scenario planning for organizational resilience. So whether you're a CEO, a team leader, or someone on the organizational side of your business, this episode is packed with actionable insights you don't want to miss. So Sean, before we jump in, where does Sean come from? Where has he been? A little bit more about Sean would be great. Cheers, Robin. Thanks for the uh, invite to come along to the podcast. Um, sure. Where do I come from? My goodness. <laughs> so, uh, born born in London um, and uh, still resident in London in England. And I was, uh, my history is basically that I was a police officer for 30 years in the London police. Uh, left that after uh, a really enjoyable and varied career, which covered everything from uh, dealing with uh, soccer to your American audience, football, to those of us that understand it for real, uh, <laughs> and the violence that went alongside that, and a lot of the operational planning in relation to major events there. And then uh, some work on armed robbery teams, uh, did a few murder investigations uh, as a small member of a team there. Uh, but finished my last 10 years were probably the most interesting where I ended up doing a hostage and crisis negotiation and ended up as head of the hostage and crisis negotiation unit at Scotland Yard, uh, which was a really enjoyable role. And I ended up there as an advisor to not just the UK government, but some other governments in relation to some international situations. So that's where my sort of interest in crisis really blossomed. Um, and I wasn't an academic at school. I ended up doing a, a bachelor's in policing and police studies. And then subsequently on the hostage world, I ended up doing a master's in critical and major incident psychology mm. and specializing in decision making, which, if you ask me, is the DNA of all crisis management. If you can yeah. understand decision making, then you might you <laughs> might be some way towards helping to manage a crisis uh, because there are no definites in this world. No, that's for sure. I then did uh, I did five years working for a gambling company as director of security, which gave me a whole new insight into decision making <laughs> and some very interesting crisis management situations there, uh, and also how what I'd done in in hostage and crisis negotiation actually lent itself to the business world. Um, so some you know some major stuff that was going on there in business terms that I was able to help out with. I then did five years as a consultant working for a major consultancy, a uh, global consultancy, uh, where we advised um, 
FTSE and Fortune companies in terms of crisis management. I taught mainly kidnap management there, but moved into crisis management. And then I now work for a company called Vestas, who make wind turbines, and I am their group crisis manager. Great, wonderful. Well, pre appreciate the context there and the background, and uh, um, the, you know your career has brought you to this point in time where we're, we're able to get together here. We've had some um, great debates on LinkedIn uh, with regards to the, the wonderful topic of crisis management, and uh, I'd like to jump straight in with uh, identifying what the strategic level actually does uh, in a crisis. I know we've had this uh, discussion a couple of times. So as it relates to specific responsibilities and actions at that level, um, how does this differ from the operational or tactical levels? Um, I, I just uh, to give you my my spin on this, and I'm just going to say this, everything here, some, as some wise people write on LinkedIn, everything here is my own view. Right. <laughs> um, albeit shaped by what I've read and what I've been through. Done. Yeah, right. Um, but I got really hacked off with uh, quite a lot of crisis management training and the stuff that I've seen in the police and outside where uh, when people said, so what do the strategic level do? And they said, oh, they make the strategic decisions. And I used to say, well, what are they then? Right. Uh, be being a stupid person, I like to have these things spelt out for me. And uh, people went, well, they're just the big decisions. And it was <laughs> it was just rubbish, really. Um, one of the joys I've got at the moment is that I'm no longer a consultant. I'm actually putting into practice what I've been saying to people. And I found that the strategic level was left to catch a cold, really, because they were just left with the big decisions. And they were making it up as they went along. Sure. Um, and that's been true of a lot of crisis management, really. I mean, uh, Rob, you've been you've been a real gentleman in terms of my critique when I when I throw you an email <laughs> occasionally, and I think other people are getting used to it that I'm just a a bit of an awkward sod. But I'm only trying to make things better. For the strategic level, I broke down what I thought or what I currently think are the five major things that they need to do in relation to any crisis. And the first thing that they need to determine is whether they own a crisis. And you ask an audience this when you run a crisis exercise, or, or even when you're speaking to a sponsor who might have employed you, Rob, to write a crisis exercise for them, is what sort of crisis do you want? And they're, you know, they're left with that. Um, Barry Schwartz does a great TED talk, a good, good psychological experiment on the paradox of choice is, well, what do I choose? They're kids in a sweet shop. So you need to break it down for people and say, well, there are crises you own and crises you don't own. And then there are, of course, there's the Venn diagram of the middle section as well. So a crisis you don't own is like a pandemic. Nothing to do with you. You're now just managing your ship through the crisis waters. You know, a, a cyber attack on your firm is a crisis situation you own. You know, a, a kidnapping is normally of your staff is a crisis that you own. Um, but you'll go into things where you might be in a joint enterprise with someone else, or it's not something that's specifically you. You know, multi multiple person kidnappings is quite interesting from my old perspective, because it might be your person who gets kidnapped and their taxi driver. And that means you've then got two different families and two different companies that are involved in that so you have a mixing that ownership helps a strategic group realize how much of this situation they can they can work towards and, and what they can do about it and how much responsibility they bear from it the second thing is scale uh, scale I, i've really just made as easy as possible and these are only guidelines you know these are these are not uh finite lists um 
but effectively you can look at it in geographic terms so that's pretty much everyone's first go is is it global is it regional is it countrywide right. <clears throat> secondly is the severity you know are you dealing with a tsunami are you dealing with a 9-11 are you dealing with a wall street crash are you dealing with something that's financially huge and then the third one I always go for is sensitivity, because if you're dealing with something like a blackmail that's going on of one of your execs or a, a sensitive issue where one of your execs has, has said something inappropriate in the wrong circumstances, then it's not an issue that you're going to want a huge crisis management team for, right. which is interesting. One of the questions I get asked frequently, uh, what size should your crisis management team be? Which, of course, I can always say, well, you know, how long is a piece of string? Right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. the more sensitive it is, the smaller the team and actually when you speak to people they've run small crisis management teams but they think because it's small it's not a crisis management team but it should abide by the same rules sure next thing they should do is this is the strategic group is pick a chair and when you ask them to pick a chair and you ask them why they're picking that chair uh predominantly in my experience they've always said he because they always use gender specific language because they always think it's a man they also think the chair is the sole decision maker in the crisis so it's almost like oh. the chair has become accountable so i've now got someone i can cut the head off you know it's <laughs> which is which is ridiculous really right um and I'll, I'll move on to a bit more about that when i speak more about chairs but Ne never when I've asked strategic groups, like if you're asking for a chair, if you want someone to chair your group, what do you want as a chair? I want someone who's calm, someone who can make decisions, someone who can show leadership, someone who uh, has got authority. And they never ever say someone who's trained to chair a crisis management meeting, right. which shows <clears throat> no one is aware that you could actually train to chair a crisis management meeting. The fourth stage for them is to pick an objective. And this is where I get, and I'm hoping that... Uh, any of your listeners or people that listen to this podcast subsequently come back and challenge on this. I advocate that a strategic group should pick one objective for a crisis management team and not multiple objectives. Mm -hmm. I appreciate I'm dealing with bigger firms, but the crisis management team should be dealing with the crisis and they should be bubbled away from the crisis. So I learned this from a, a senior police officer that I work with in, um, in terms of, of policing a, a major event. And when we were policing this major event, we said if a crisis happens, we had a crisis team set there just to bubble off that incident so we could carry on policing the, the main event. And that was a lesson I've sort of taken on with me, which is, you know, if I'm now in a, in a company and we have a crisis, I bubble that crisis off so that someone gets on and deals with it and the rest of us can get on with running the company. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of people don't seem to understand. They need a single objective because the strategic group's got to communicate clearly. If the strategic group communicate multiple objectives or a complicated objective, you've left the chair and the crisis management team with no chance of making a clear decision. Can I, can I just have a quick question on that? Yeah, so, sure, so sure. Could, could that be, so if they've got that one objective and that objective, you know, throughout that, you know, period is, um, uh, you know, you know, they, they've achieved that objective, you know, would they get, could they then get another objective if the, yeah. if the crisis continues? So it would be, you know, this cycle that continues, but uh, they would need to make sure that objective obviously has been, you know. Well, uh, there's, two, there's two, two ways that it resolves. Number one is you've given us the objective, which is resolve the problem by whichever means and we've done that or right. number two the environment has now changed drastically right, and therefore right. i need to come back to you and you need to reset the objective sure here's here's the interesting thing and i use these quotes a lot as it uh, winston churchill said i don't have the time to write a short letter you know which meant he would write <laughs> yeah. massively long things because it was he could just 
do a stream of consciousness. And then you find out Mark Twain did the same. And then I think it was actually Blaise Pascal said it in about 1600 or when it was 17. Yeah. Right. Everyone's understood that it's really, really hard to write a short note. You know, one of the things when I worked with governments years ago was uh, all of that attention to detail about trying to bring something down to a small and concise statement is one of the hardest things you do. It is that that you know you've got to kill your babies you've got to actually say what it is you want doing right i've worked with executive groups and they hate they hate being dragged down to you know now make the decision they go, i'm really good at making decisions well make it well yeah. no, that's uncomfortable you know, so. <laughs> right yeah yeah these are all good fun one of the other things i do is when i'm training people is i try and i don't have a dark sense of humor but i do try and bring that sense of humor to the fore and and I make light of, and I can always bring up some dreadful war stories of, of difficult times. Oh. So, um, but I just need people to enjoy crisis management training. There's, there's too much crisis management training that ends in a dark scenario, or people are going to be giving a thrashing. Absolute rubbish. Right. People have got to enjoy <clears throat> crisis management training and understand that it's the process that helps you win the day. Yep. It's not. These are not who done it. You nope. know. Right. I say I say as an old cop, you know, they these are <laughs> learn right. learn the bloody process and the process will get you there. Right. You know, trust yeah. that the bicycle will hold you up. So and my my final thing on this is again, it's a decision point for the strategic group is resources. Far too often I've seen um well, how much is it gonna cost? Yeah, that's fine. We we can work that out in a lot of scenarios. But then the the resources they abuse tend to be the humans. And mm -hmm. actually, when you say I'm going to have a crisis team, then cut people out from their day job and send them to deal with the crisis. Don't say we're going to deal with the crisis at seven in the morning or seven at night, and we're going to do our day job during the day. That's not how it works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. You know, going back to that enjoyable. You know, make sure it's enjoyable. You know, you know, in, in the scenario planning world, we like to round that scenario off. There's so, so many times where it'll just end with, you know, you're in the middle of this thing and it ends. You know, we we like to round the story off. We like to, you know, we transition into recovery, right? And what's that look like? And we have that conversation, but all too often we spend too much time at the beginning here in in the you know instant response and, and managing the event that you know we don't think that there's going to be a, a new uh, dimension afterwards whatever that might look like but mm. but again we, we like to round that story off you know bring it to a, a conclusion in a, in a way that's you know beneficial to those that are not going to walk away and, and this comes from the military background so same as you from the police saying don't leave them on a low <laughs> leave leave them on a high you know give them some good pointers to go away with good yeah. you know and then and then they're more likely to come back for more right yeah I did. I, I had a joke I used with a lot of my courses. So I, I ran hundreds of courses when I was uh, a consultant, hundreds of courses a year. Uh, and and especially when the pandemic came and it moved online, I actually seemed to run more courses because yeah. you know that all moved that way. Uh, and a great line that many people who have heard me rabbit on uh, uh, say it is, I am never going to write a book because I just don't want to write a book. Um, but if I did, it would be called enjoy the critical incident, you know, because unless you go into, unless you go into a crisis with, a, with the view that this is an opportunity to shine and this is an opportunity to enjoy yourself, you're unlikely to do as well as the, you know, those people that fear walk into it with fear or with that kind of Maslowian, I've got to look after myself first, right. yeah. just not going to play the game. So, yeah, yeah, you're good. Good. Great stuff. Um, okay. Redefining the role of the chair. 
Um, yeah, I think this is a great, uh, great topic. <laughs> I know we when we had a our conversation in the lead up to this, um, you know, we, yeah, we, uh, yeah I, I, I love this one as well. Um, other aspects of the role that are traditionally overlooked, but critical for effective management during a crisis. Yeah, I, I mean, so I, so my whole concept of the chair is that the chair is not the 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 man at the front of the longboat you know yep. it's not the guy standing behind the the person beating the drum so that everyone can row in time the, the chair is actually a facilitator the chair is there to bring the best out of the team yep um and i i use a, i use an image of um of for which i was much criticized by some dear friends of mine because i just used icons of of powerpoint uh, but i have a farmer um with sheep uh, and that that's effectively what a the chair of meeting is but the they're not sheep people around the table are not sheep they're actually brains yep and you're there to farm the brains of the people around the table so if you had a crisis management team with eight people which is not a bad number if you had a crisis management team of eight people and one chair the chair's one brain does not outweigh the eight the eight people have so much more to give sure yeah yeah and part of the chair training is this there was there was a, a massive old gag that people used to use in policing many years ago um at public order which was that um everyone keeps banging on about leadership training actually what we need is some follower training and you actually <laughs> needed to train people to follow yeah. <laughs> what the leaders were saying um and it, it there, there was a out of that humor i had has come to me a sense of of reality is that so for chair training i actually train them not to do things like um you know the availability heuristic don't say what you're thinking first get to hear what everyone else says oh, sure, your yeah. job your yeah. job is to crystallize the thoughts of the whole group you right. The team are not there to make your decision easier because it's not your decision, it's the team's decision. It's to make it as robust as possible. So you need to hear the good and the bad. Yep. Um, I've just finished, actually, Reece. Someone recommended me uh, that that book, Thinking in Bets. I don't know if you've read no, this. There's a, there's a really good thing in it, which is for a, a good group, you need uh, two, to, two to disagree and one to referee. So your chair is actually a referee. You want some heat and debate, right. you know, so alongside the chair training of, of understanding how powerful your words are, of understanding what your role is, of understanding the structure, of explaining to people what the decision-making model is before you get on with it, the, the other side of that is actual team training. And people have not identified, you know, people say, oh, yeah, I need someone from uh, PNC or HR, I need someone from legal, I need someone from this, someone from that. And that's effectively all you think you need, but it's it's wrong you know i've added to that list you need uh you need a free thinker and you need a free spirit and you need a lazy person and then you need a what you want is is a diversity of views and and you know there's been a lot of banging on about diversity particularly for people from uh what i call the vocational services you know the ambulance service the police the fire service health service you know, there's a lot of talk about diversity and it's it sort of always seems to be tinged as a negative. And actually, you read anything of, of note that says that the minute you have a, a crisis management team of, of 61-year-old white middle-aged men with golf handicaps between 17 and 15, I've lied about my golf handicap there, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, then we're all, we're all going to come up with the same idea. It's right. rubbish. Right. It's absolute rubbish. You need a diversity on that group. 
You also need team members to be told to play devil's advocate. If they don't have a view, then challenge it, you know? Yep. And so with the chair training, the chair training is about allowing everyone to get their say and making sure they've got the right time to say it and making sure they feel comfortable for it. And a new term that, that's popped up is psychological safety. And that's something I'm trying to weave into my work at the moment. That's the chair's job. The team member's job is to do the hard work and to come <laughs> up with, and not, and not win, but actually debate and, yes. and, and, and polish what is going to be the decision. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. I, I really, we looked at this many years ago as well. We, we found that, you know, that there's a lot of leaders that of course want to you know take control of the conversation as a lot of leaders want to do everything. I remember we were in one exercise um, with a client and uh, the leader literally was documenting everything. The leader was talking, the leader was, you know, literally doing everything. And, and we said, you're just going to burn out. It's, it's not going to work out very well. And we found that those leaders that were, you know, had the ears uh, that, you know, the EQ over the IQ. If, you know, those emotional intelligent leaders um, that had the ability to go across party lines, <laughs> dare I say it, as we come into a political year, <laughs> you know, those that could reach across yeah, yeah. throughout the organization and have the ability to listen and understand and bring those people together. So you're exactly right. And uh, and I love uh, I love everything you said there with regards so to it's that. One of the big things that I, I, I did do, which I, I, do, I do less now because physical assaults are no longer de rigueur, is um, as soon as I'm running a crisis exercise and someone is the chair and they pick a pen up and start to make their own notes, I grab the pen out of their hand and I throw their notepad away and stop them doing it. Because the minute they do that, they stop they're not, listening. They're not listening. Yeah, right. They're not listening, yep. 100%. Secondly is the log keeper. If, and if you get the chance to review other people's logs, um, People haven't had log keeper training. That's that's essential. Yep. But the log the log keepers are quite often given advice of just record everything. Yeah, the, so they they record yeah. banal rubbish. You yes. know, and, yeah, and yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You go back to look at it, and I and this I challenged uh, Jessip. Jessip were a group or are a group around who um, in the UK they gave a lot of advice in relation to logs. And their first thing on their page about logs was logs are there to be scrutinized afterwards and can help learning. No, they're not. A log is there to help you achieve the objective right? because the team might change, because things might change and you need to go back. So a log has one primary and should have an only function, which is there to help the team achieve the objective. The secondary benefit of a log is it can be gathered up and then a proper review can be undertaken. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's great. Um, so promoting uh, escalation, what mechanisms should be in place to ensure uh, efficient and timely escalation of issues during a crisis? And can you give an example? Yeah, just I'm going to I'm going to try and not to be as loquacious as I've been. <laughs> yeah. uh, the one thing to improve escalation in any business Praise the people who escalate. Praise the people who escalate. <laughs> if 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 you think that escalation is going to get you a telling off, you're not going to escalate. If you think escalating something is going to make people think less of you because well, you couldn't deal with it, you've just given me a problem. Right. Then, then you're killing escalation. So yep. it's a whole psychological mindset change is the 
you know, escalation has got to be seen as a positive thing. Informing and communicating has got to be seen as a positive thing. Yeah. And it just isn't at the moment. There are still people in this world who believe that information should be escalated to them when they're not going to do anything with it or help out in any way, shape or form. But they need to be told just to protect themselves. Right. I'm sorry, but that's a culture that needs to be called out and challenged frequently. Yep. Every organisation top to bottom should understand that escalation is their shield that's the thing that's going to save them yep yep okay really i really like that uh, excellent stuff crisis communication um how important is effective uh obviously communication during crisis and what best practices can organizations adapt to ensure that information flows obviously internally and externally seamlessly uh well you can't because it's not going to flow seamlessly uh, I think I think there's some real basics here, which is less is more. Yes. Um, yep. th th those people that think you do an internal message for your staff and an external message for the media are, are fools. And uh, they need to understand that if I was a, a media person, I'd spend my time looking for the lines and shadows between internal and external messaging. Um, it's, it's a hiding to nothing. So comms people are absolutely brilliant. They can really help you and make your life yep. a, a wonderful thing. Um, the, the only, the only thing that needs to happen really in my mind in relation to crisis is there needs to be more frequent exercising with them. Um, they need to be given the time within an exercise to actually go and prepare some lines. Yeah, I don't. Th yeah, I don't think that happens as often. We we see that as well. We, it's just not. There's you know either it's not built into those you know core objectives of the exercise, or it's just something that is you know a, an afterthought. I think there should be a dedicated you know comms exercise. You know, right, just to get them to go through that process on a and it's that process as well, right? How many people sign off on it? Like you know, less is more. Uh, yeah. And and when we first sit down with organizations and they say well no there's you know four organizers for within the organization there's four groups that that's a go through um before we can get this message out meanwhile two days later um you know the the privacy or the information that's been flowing out the back door um and uh, the media i mean we look at uh, obviously incidents that are going on right now in in the u.s right and uh um you know things things you know don't stop for you know for, for to wait for the legal team to uh you know to fill in the gaps some, someone's just said, one of the coaches has just said, and I can't remember which one, um, uh, in the Rugby World Cup at the moment, said, we, we, the thing we are, are planning to do is to become comfortable with the uncomfortable. So that's partly what the exercising should do. It should make you comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have, I don't tend to use sophisticated anymore um exercises so i mean I, my my whole world was in immersive exercises particularly around hostage and crisis negotiation you know either terrorists or suicides um but now i i'm really much a, a much more about getting the crisis management team away from any kind of stimulus and allowing them to work in a room on their own which which is what should happen you shouldn't be interfered with by you know because you'll put more weight on a video screen than you will on what's going on you've only got to let someone's phone ring and you watch them just divert their attention to a phone yeah, so yeah, that, yeah. all of that's got to go so i still use though role players to ring up one of the most interesting ones is when the journalist rings up and the journalist gets through so everyone then in the room sits and watches which is fine because that's a learning point here's my my little internal gag is how long it is before someone in the room moves their hand across their throat in a cutting action to effectively say get that journalist off the phone 
Right. Now, one of one of the bits of feedback I give is the minute you've done that, you've lost a great source of information because if the journalist has rung up, they've obviously been told something. So, provided you can chat with them, be you know you've you've got to be honest and say you don't know what's going on and that you'll try and get someone onto them, but you can still gain from them a load of information that's going to help you make your decisions. Right, information is the lifeblood of all decision making. You know right. that's yeah, just yeah. the basics. So, yeah. so cutting people out and getting rid of them is just not a way to go. There are some real natural people you find within your organisation by multiple exercises. You'll find the people that are really good in those sort of circumstances and who to put in there. Yeah, I think it, certainly here in the States, when you talk to comms teams who deal with the media on a regular basis, especially as it relates to their industry, is more often than not, there's going to be someone that they're somewhat familiar with, whether it's good, bad or indifferent, that are reporting mm -hmm. on them on a regular basis. So, you know, you know, we classify them as a good as a stakeholder that you should be, you know, you know, on that list of someone that you can, you know, talk to again before during and after right so yeah. um, i think you know and again that stakeholder list uh, becomes critical so certainly um you know that's a that's a benefit of uh, going through these exercises and even identifying who are they who are those stakeholders right yeah sure no absolutely it's a uh, but as i say i think it's one of the it's it's interesting actually when you use a comms person within your exercise are they an advisor or are they a team player are they so I make a huge difference between advisors and, and team members within a crisis management team. So, you know, if you had a kidnapping situation and I came along as a kidnap advisor, I should not be allowed to make your decisions for you. You sure. still make yeah. your own decisions. But you watch advisors come into crisis in real situations, you know. They come in there and they effectively will take over because they'll yeah. start giving you loaded information to take you down the route That's... they want you to go. Right. And, and the best lawyers in the world annoyingly don't do that because they sit there and go you go left this is what might happen you go right this is what may happen the choice is yours you know and it's <laughs> like i could never stand it but it's absolutely right and i i use um so i'll share something with you now that i share with a lot of my classes and people think i just sort of make this up but when my father was dying my uh he was in a hospital in ireland and my mother was given the option whether he could go into the hospice and die peacefully or stay in the hospital and be pumped up with drugs and stay in pain for another couple of days and she looked at me and because i was studying decision making at the time i said oh um well, Doc, you've, how many times do you ask this question a year? He goes, oh, a couple of hundred. And I said, so what's the right decision? He goes, can't tell you. It's your choice. And that's, so that's a really good yep. analogy for yep. where you, you know, these people come in with these experts, war stories, brilliant people to go for a drink with because they'll tell you fantastic <laughs> yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, they shouldn't, they shouldn't be making your choices for you. And yep. that's really weird. And I've had a... a, a, a a COO in one organization say, well, if you're not going to tell me what to do in a situation, I don't want you. Right. And I went, yeah, but you, you don't understand. No, no, right. don't want, I don't want you. I want the person who's going to come in and tell me. Right. Can't not, do yeah. No, no. Because at the end, at the end of the day, you're not going to be there, you know, when it comes afterwards for the, all, all the legal wranglings afterwards. And, you know, why did we go left versus right? You know, we, we were there to give you the facts and give you, you know, the, that's, you know, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, it doesn't always work that way, you know. Um, again, it's always bad. This, you know, when you just refer to the the book you've just recently read, but that thinking in bets does talk quite a lot about no decisions are a hundred percent. In fact, the person they say to have a bet with is the person who says they're a hundred percent certain about something because <laughs> yeah. nothing is a hundred percent. So you should get on with them very quickly.
Yeah, I remember in the military, you know, we, we'd be out on the ground and, of course, you'd have ops, an ops room there. And, you know, of course, the ops room is, not, you know, in our, in my world anyway, was never say, you know, go left or go right. You know, they, they'd give you, you know, if you do go left, you're going to go up a hill and over the hill. And if you go right, you're going <laughs> to, you know, it's, 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 you know, but you're on the ground. So make that decision. Right. So, but yeah, yeah that's good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Moving on then. We've got a couple of more uh, topics here. Team preparedness and training. Uh, what kinds of training should a crisis management team undergo? Um, and then can you recommend any um, simulations or exercises that have been proven uh, particularly beneficial? Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm very much into creating a kind of cycle of training. So one of the things I, I designed, um, which a few people took up, was what was called a gym model. So I actually do a crisis in an, in, in an hour. So there's three 15-minute yep. segments and then just rattle them through it. And you're never going to get through a whole scenario. So sometimes they are yep. going to leave a degree of un uh, dissatisfaction, but it's effectively the start of an incident, the middle of an incident, or the end of yep. an incident. Yep. And and you just run those frequently. And without all the tracks. So I run those without role players. I run those without uh, great big slides coming in that are showing, you know, this is what the newspapers are saying at this time, or this is a radio oh. broadcast. So they are just isolated, cold. Here's a situation. Now just make some decisions yep. and give me some rationale. Um, that, it, for me, is the most cost-effective uh, way of training and grooming crisis management teams and also identifying the people that are comfortable within them yep. or taking the people that are uncomfortable and making them more comfortable because – they need that kind of sterile environment. You know, um, I, I had a professor called Jonathan Crago, a brilliant guy, uh, and Jonathan said to me, you know, every decision is emotional. Every decision is emotional. You know, you're going to buy a guitar, you're going to buy a car. It, the color matters. It doesn't matter a jot, you know, right, right, but it right. matters to you. You know, so right. every decision is emotional. So the big thing I try and do with crisis management teams is move them into a less emotional. The, the chair should be doing everything they can to reduce the emotions. Almost, they should be nice, quiet rooms, you know, nice, slow, sterile. Yeah. Almost feels like it's going slowly. You actually get business done a lot quicker. You're not at the front line. One of the problems I had with a lot of clients before were the, the, the CEOs were were people that had grown up and had made gut instinct decisions all their life and had managed to get to the top of an organization. So therefore they were groomed into thinking that their gut instinct decisions were right all the time. <laughs> they were lucky. They were lucky, you know? And, yep. and if they'd made a mistake, they'd managed to get around it and everyone accepted it. But it's not the way that you want. If I, if I owned an organization, I wouldn't want my decision-making made in that kind of environment. I want it made uh, with groupthink gets a really bad term so you have you have to find a different term for it uh groupthink is a, a poisonous term but actually having a group make your decisions or a decision pod as it's referred to in in that thinking in bet's book is about cold and sterile environment the crisis the people actually at the cold face of the crisis are having to make instinctive decisions so if you look at someone like gary klein the great work gary klein did around decision making where he talks about firefighters having been trained and trained and trained and trained and trained so they turn up to a fire so they're not going oh is it is it a big fire or a small fire is right, it a right, right. petrol yeah. fire or water you know fire you know oil fire they they can they have already got that decision bank inside them so there's, there's a good chance they're going to make the right decisions at the crisis management team it's it's not that way so you just have a process stick to your process and then go ahead and make your decisions yeah so for teams 
a more more regular training regardless of what it is just more regular training more decisions in terms of scenarios i loved there was a guy who was writing 52 articles in a year who i was following on linkedin for a while and i think he wrote he wrote the line about i'm desperate to do a crisis exercise where martians land and it's <laughs> because everyone goes through it's unrealistic and and the amount of time you have to spend with people going through an exercise like your exercise sponsor saying oh no it needs to be realistic they need i don't want them saying oh that can't happen well pretty right. much rob we've seen everything yep, happen yep, you know yep. you, anyone who says it won't happen yeah that's the person to have a bet with because they're saying 100 this will not happen okay let's yep. let's get some money on it yeah yeah no i you know that's why we do this I've, and uh you know even you know one well many situ many situations some more recently very recent but uh one in the past where you know uh we were with a, an organization and we were doing active shooter and it's like no 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 in in the active shooter drill it was one of their offices in dallas we were in chicago um an employee said i'm going to the vehicle i'm getting my shotgun i'm coming back in while we were in the you know exercise and and the, you know a couple of the people were you know before the exercise like no I, you know we don't want to we don't want to do this because this is you know this won't happen to us <laughs> and, and then we were in the exercise in a different part of the country and then you know anyway he didn't come back to the office and, and look at it anyway, but um you know again often you know we go through these and they, Scott, they... Scott, scotland yard's hostage team started to do um like ghost exercise so you would start an exercise and because you would just go through the, the motions at the start and pretty much the person who was getting in the chair first of all to negotiate knew there were another four people in the class to come after them and therefore it was never going to resolve in their on their go in the chair. Uh, yeah. We started to put ghost exercises in that did resolve. So actually you had, instead of the four people going through one exercise, you had two exercises and the thing would resolve at stage one. Everyone went, oh. And then the second exercise would start up, and then they'd be back in. So they'd be back in again. You see, so yeah, there, there are there are ways of of you know selling dummies to people, which which you do need to do. You need you need to reinvigorate people and say, yeah, yeah. I love we we've, we've done those in the past as well. You know, two scenarios. We get hit with one, and then all of a sudden something comes. You know, again, these things. You know, we've we've seen these things happen for you know for real, and um, you know, keeping people on their toes is uh, you know certainly a big mm. part of. It. And the last thing that I want to mention there on the keeping the environment calm as well. We always did that in the military, right? So same. I'm sure you did the same in the police there. You know, that environment when you come into for the brief, right? to make sure that's a calm environment we're coming back in uh we're reporting back on on what we're not all around the, not all around the world though you see i've been to other parts of the world training people where they have live feeds as to what's going on and it starts to affect the decision making of the senior group yeah because you know we, we used to say in, in policing terms that what they used to call the gold commander should set the strategy and then on the day of the event for a pre-planned event they should be at home cutting the grass and no <laughs> nowhere near it but right you know what people are like. Many of them couldn't keep away from a major event. So yeah, I still hear now where there's, you know, it's like, oh no, we're going to jump on the one eight hundred number. You know, and the crisis team starts off with, you know, ten, and it's all of a sudden it's a hundred. And I've, mm. you know, I've, I've heard some, you know, some horror stories. I am, I am seeing a shift here um, away, away from that. Um, again, it's about process, right? And once they get that process driven into them, uh, they understand the benefits of of that coordination and communication mm. streamlining. So, anyway, I think we've touched on the last one here in terms of scenario planning. Anything else on that front? No, nothing for me. No. Yeah, great. Well, I want to thank you for your time today, Sean. I re really appreciate it. Uh, if folks want to touch base with you, I'm going to add your LinkedIn profile, uh, public sure, profile thanks. here to uh, to your LinkedIn profile. So, if they want to touch base, is that the best way? Yeah, no, absolutely. 
Perfect. Well, again, appreciate your time and uh, lo love the conversation. Hope, hope to continue it again uh, soon and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be seeing you again in the new year. Definitely. Take care, my friend. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks everyone. That wraps up episode 125. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, give us a thumbs up, make a comment wherever you're listening to this. Uh, we appreciate it. Until next time, thank you. Thank you.